0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very special occasion of the 100th episode of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is The Touchstone, an interview with Dr. Bill Rawls. My name is Richard Johanneson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: So Matt, congratulations, we've made it to episode 100. And I think what's really most exciting for me personally is we decided that we wanted to do a podcast where we would locate the real experts, not the folks in the academic community or folks in the medical community, but the people who have had real Lyme disease journeys, and we thought and we believed that they would be the real experts,
1: and I think now that we're at, at episode 100, we were right. Rich, we've learned so much from our 100 guests, like Kelly Bibza who taught us about bioresonance, Ali Moresco who taught us about IVIG, Jody Hudson who taught us about the mast cell activation syndrome, and after learning all these things, we couldn't help but want to come back to Dr. Rawls to discuss everything we learned with him on our one hundred podcast episode. So, Matt, we did interview Dr. Rawls
0: very early on in our podcast experience. And unfortunately, we really weren't in a position to fully appreciate everything that Dr. Rawls had shared with us then. And we had to come back to him because we're now in a very different position. And I think our listeners in a very different position after now listening to 99 other experts teach us some very important information. Another thing that I thought was really exciting at least in the portion of the interview that I conducted with Dr. Rawls was I had an opportunity to challenge Dr. Rawls in a couple of conclusions that I've come to. First, I believe that Lyme disease is a bioweapon. And I believe that in large part because of the interview we we did with Chris Newby and after reading her book, Bitten. And he feels very differently than Chris Newby and I do on whether or not Lyme disease is a bioweapon. The second thing that I was really excited to challenge Dr. Rolls on is whether or not Lyme disease is a pandemic. And it's certainly important for us during the course of COVID and Mary Beth Pfeiffer's great book entitled Lyme, the first pandemic of global warming. And Dr. Rolls doesn't believe that Lyme disease is a pandemic either, and he gave us a distinction between an epidemic, a pandemic, and endemic, which quite frankly, I don't share with him, but I think it was a really well thought out and reasoned response to the question of whether or not Lyme disease is in fact a pandemic. So Matt, we're going to have two separate episodes. The first episode will be 100A, which will be Rich and Rawls, and 100B, which will be the conversation between Lymeys, which will be your conversation with Dr. Rawls. So with no further ado, Dr. Bill Rawls let's start with your definition of Lyme disease. How do you define Lyme disease and how is your definition different than the traditional definition of Lyme disease?
2: It's a lot different, (laughs) okay? And and, and it really, even that question is somewhat complicated because even it goes back to Lyme Connecticut, all right? So the definition of Lyme disease is illness caused by a microbe called Borrelia. And Borrelia burgdorferi is the most common uh, version of it that we see, though, where there are 12 microbes or 12 species of Borrelia worldwide that can cause Lyme disease. So technically, Lyme disease is illness caused by that microbe. But what I've learned is that different microbes have different approaches you know the coronavirus has a very different approach from Lyme disease and these so so different approaches of different microbes affect the body differently Um, so uh, uh, the is our conversation is are we going to use that conversation that i talked about uh, coronavirus and 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 Borrelia before
0: Probably not. So if you can go into that again, that would be Yeah. Great.
2: Okay. All right. So, you know, that's uh, different microbes use different strategies like coronavirus out there is uh, uses a breakdown the door approach for getting what it wants from the body. It, it infects the cells of the lungs. It's moving quickly. You know, it, it, it gets the nutrients and the things that it needs from the cells in the lungs. And then it causes us to cough and sneeze, which spreads at the other host. So Lyme disease is using a different strategy, and what it wants is nutrients and resources that our body provides and a platform to spread to other hosts. So it infects our body, and it uh, immediately, so when we get a tick bite, the microbes in our system, they infect white blood cells and disperse to all tissues throughout the body, where they quietly set up shop. Um, And they hang out there till they wait for another host. And if the immune system is strong, it doesn't necessarily cause symptoms. Um, So when you talk about Lyme disease, this infection with a microbe, uh, first of all, anybody with Lyme disease will talk about co-infections that other microbes can be uh, acquired at the same tick bite. It turns out that ticks carry hundreds of microbes, which isn't surprising because really all organisms on earth carry hundreds of microbes, and a lot of microbes use ticks as a vector. You know, it's a a really cool way to spread from host to host, so a lot of microbes take advantage of that. So we often don't just get Borrelia, and there's certainly other microbes that can cause illness, Um, but when these microbes first enter the body, they are... Uh, you know they there is a confrontation with the immune system but that dies down pretty rapidly so a lot of people don't have very pronounced acute symptoms that's not the strategy of the microbe it's not trying to make us sick it's trying to use our body so it's flying underneath the radar and it moves into our system and often we don't know about it so when you talk about Lyme disease, I think the medical community is is has in mind this acute manifestation of Lyme disease, that the you get bitten by the tick and the ticks enter the microbes enter the body and they can cause an immune reaction which is generally mild, um, and if you take antibiotics, you may not down the numbers of those microbes enough that your immune system can handle it and you don't have symptoms. So that's how most of the medical community thinks about this, is an acute illness caused by this single microbe. But what I've learned over time from talking to so many people is most people don't remember a tick bite and they didn't have acute manifestations. And I'm also finding in the research that If you look hard enough, uh, there's studies out there that show that even people that get antibiotics after an acute tick bite that they've had symptoms, a high percentage of those people do not eradicate the microbe. In fact, I'm not sure anybody completely eradicates the microbe. This thing hangs around in the body. And if your immune system is healthy, you're okay. But if your immune system becomes jeopardized for whatever reason, Chronic stress, not sleeping, not eating a good diet, you know, all these things that are coming at us all the time. If the immune system becomes disrupted, these things flourish in the body and they start causing chronic symptoms. But at that point, it's not just the Lyme microbe. It's all the microbes in the body. Because what my research is showing is that We have microbes in our tissues. We have microbes in our brain, in our joints, in our heart. Everybody does always. Some are worse than others, you know, but like a big city, um, we've, we've got criminals. We've, you know, a big city has criminals and we've got these opportunists hiding out in our microbiome, in our tissues, in our brain, in our heart, all over. So and these things are looking for an opportunity to, to manipulate the immune system to gain the upper hand, to gain more, um, more uh, of, of the resources that they want to survive. And it, that can make us sick. So I see chronic illness that what we call chronic Lyme disease, which isn't even recognized by the conventional medical community, is this situation where, the immune system has been disrupted. The The microbes, not just the Lyme microbes that others in the body, the co-infections, but all these other things are starting to become active and starting to generate inflammation and make us ill. So, so, so I see Dr. that beyond just Lyme disease. Yeah. So, so
0: would you define Lyme disease differently? Meaning, would you define Lyme disease as a multi-germ
2: infection? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think you would have to. And, and it's interesting if you go back to Dr. Bergdorfer's original work, um, you know, he, he did define that Borrelia did cause the bullseye rash that physicians had been reporting associated with tick bites, this bullseye rash illness that we call the EM rash, um, that he defined that Borrelia was causing that. But in the original specimens, he also, in just as many specimens, found a species of rickettsia that was common in New England. And, you know, he was suspicious that maybe that was the factor that was causing those people to become so acutely ill. Uh, So, yeah, I think most of the time we pick up other microbes, but the deal is we pick up microbes throughout our lifetimes, you know? Um, every time we breathe, have intimate contact with other people. I mean, all of these things we pick up microbes and they aren't necessarily our friends. (laughs) You know, we depend on a healthy immune system to stay well. And that's uh, in this day and age, we've got a lot of things coming at us as far as immune system functions. go.
0: So Dr. Ross, can you distinguish an acute infection from a chronic infection and what impact that has on Uh, someone who's suffering from chronic Lyme disease?
2: Um, Yeah, the acute infection is just that acute phase when the microbe enters the body. So the difference in an acute infection and a chronic infection with any microbe, Borrelia or any other microbe, is the acute infection is the immune response to the, the invasion, the introduction of a new microbe into the body, all right? So it's that acute phase reaction. So even if you've got a healthy immune system, um, a microbe can cause you illness during that acute phase. You know, it's uh, coronavirus makes people ill as soon as it enters the body. You know, within five or six days after being infected with coronavirus, you start having this acute war between the immune system and the microbe. But again, uh, Borrelia and tick-borne microbes are more of those slip under the radar microbes. They're using a slightly different strategy. Uh, so they don't cause as much of an acute reaction and because they're, they have different motives in mind. You know, their strategy is to just set up shop in tissues. So a lot of people don't have the kind of acute reaction with Lyme disease that they would have with something like coronavirus or influenza because the microbes are using different strategies. If you have a chronic infection with anything, no matter whether whether you're talking about Lyme disease, tuberculosis, malaria, anything else, what that means is that the immune system isn't able to keep that microbe in check. So looking at any microbe, you know, Ebola virus. Ebola virus is a terrible microbe because we have no immunity to it because humans have rarely been exposed to it. Uh, It kills about 60% of people, 30 to 60%, depending on the variety of Ebola that comes along. Those people that survive, their immune system figures out how to take care of that, that thing, and they will gradually recover their health but the interesting thing is even with Ebola virus, when they went back and checked people that had recovered their health, that had had Ebola and survived it, they still had that Ebola virus in their body. It's just that their immune system had figured out how to keep, uh, keep a check on this thing, keep a thumb on it. So whenever you have a chronic, somebody who's chronically infected, they're just not getting over the infection. What it's, what it's just screens is, the immune system isn't working properly. Sometimes that's the microbe, you know, uh, microbes like tuberculosis can chronically keep the immune system down for a whole lifetime and basically just wear a person down and cause them to be ill until they finally die. Lyme disease can do that same thing, but I think there are an awful lot of people out there that are walking around carrying Borrelia and the co-infections. Um, Bartonella and Mycoplasma—all of these things. A lot of us have them, and you know, so so the immune system plays a huge role. Um, if you've got a healthy immune system, it's generally going to keep things in check. What
0: impact does a multi-germ infection have on the immune system? And do you believe that if you were only infected with Borrelia from a tick bite, would Borrelia alone make you chronically ill?
2: You know, it, it depends on the situation. And, and again, uh, it's uh, what most physicians are talking about when they talk about Lyme disease is acute Lyme disease when that microbe has just entered the body. Um, and again, we, you know, I think we do get other microbes. But this concept that the, that of our microbiome not being uh, just uh, isolated to the gut and skin I think is, uh, is an interesting concept. You, you know, just this awareness now that we do have microbes throughout the tissues in our bodies, and that's been well proven. Um, they didn't find out before, you know, like five years ago, because they never really looked. They <laughs> just didn't think they were there. Um, but now that we're looking, we're finding, ooh, yeah, we really do have these things. Um, so a lot of people are carrying Borrelia without being sick, I think there are genetic factors. I think there are a lot of things that affect us in our lifetime. Um, So, you know, some people are going to be more resistant to that particular microbe than others. Uh, There are different strains and different species of Borrelia. You know, what infects one person may be very different than what infects another person. So, there are multiple variables that enter into that equation. Um, But there is a, yes, you know, once you've got that vicious cycle of chronic infection going on, the microbes play a large role in perpetuating that cycle. Um, And that's one of the features of these intracellular microbes, um, of which there are many, Um, you know, that's intracellular microbes are microbes that live inside cells. And that includes bacteria, protozoa, fungi, and certainly uh, uh, viruses, um, which are very common. Um, So they have to have, you know, they they, they either, uh, they prefer to have a cell that they, you know, it's, it's easy living. I mean, if you can enter a cell of a host, then all the resources you need and everything you need to to create new microbes is right there. (laughs) And you just take over that cell's machinery and take over the resources and and it works really well. Um, And many microbes have taken advantage of that. Uh, Borrelia is one that can go either way. It can thrive outside cells and inside cells too, which makes it very adaptable. Um, But, Again, if your immune system is healthy, it keeps that in check once that becomes disturbed though it becomes a vicious cycle and the fact that these intracellular microbes manipulate the immune system they they infect white blood cells and they manipulate the immune system um, that perpetuates the infection you know i I like to think about it um, like um You know, if you've got a group of criminals in a large city somewhere, um, suppose that group of criminals specialized in hijacking police cars and to get the radio so they could call into central dispatch and send all the cops to the other side of the town for where the crime is going on. You know, it's the same kind of thing. So these these microbes are able to manipulate white blood cells and the cytokines or chemical messengers that they produce to uh, to basically send the resources, uh, send all the troops of the immune system, all the white blood cells, uh, focused on allergies or parasites or something other than the intercellular microbes so the microbes can thrive. And this disruption, you know, it's, it's kind of like... Um, uh, if somebody you know if somebody cranked up a, a, a brass band in the room next door to where i'm speaking it would be really hard for us to concentrate and get done what we're doing so it's noise it's distraction it throws the immune system off guard so these microbes can get a little bit more of a foothold and it's this constant tug of war that that causes the misery so it's The 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 symptoms of chronic Lyme disease come as much from the microbes manipulating the immune system as they do from the direct damage of harming cells and generating inflammation. Doctor Rose, I'm sorry,
1: Doctor Rose, you mentioned that some people can have genetic deficiencies as well to keep them sick with chronic Lyme. Many of our hundred podcast guests that we've interviewed have mentioned having the MTHFR genetic uh, deficiency. Can you talk to us about what that is and how it keeps people sick with chronic Lyme?
2: Yeah, I think there are other factors besides that. Um, and that is uh, not as much of a genetic defect as it's already referred to. It's just a genetic variation. All right. Um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah. You know, here's the deal. Every cell in the body has, has 23 Chromosomes that are packed full of information, and we're at any given moment we're using about 1.4, 1.8 percent of that information. So a lot of it is just information. So any information that your ancestors, any problems that your ancestors encountered over and over, are recorded in those genes, including the adaptations of the immune system to different microbes. So we know our friend Friendly 4 and most of the microbes we encounter because all of those things are recorded in our genes. Now I like to think of it as almost like, um, you know, when we have a new microbe that we're confronted with, it's almost like uh, the immune system can go to a genetic database and go, OK, well, let's see if we can pull an app for that microbe. And if we've got an app for that microbe, then we're in good shape. Or you know it might give us an advantage. With, so most of our microbes, um, tick-borne microbes. Humans have been bite, bitten by ticks since the beginning of humans. So we've, we've we've encountered these things before. Ebola virus, no app. We've never encountered that thing before. Humans, it's just brand new. Um, coronavirus, the new coronavirus. You know there are three species of coronavirus that have been circulating in human populations forever, and they cause the common cold. Um, so this other one, it comes from an animal. So we just don't have the same immunity. We don't have as good an app for, for coronavirus for, for this new coronavirus that we do for the other ones that we're exposed to. So, um, so yeah, genetics. So, but the MTHFR thing, that's, um, that is more of a variation that's affecting us now that didn't affect us in the past. And it has to do with... Methylation and uh, d- uh, absorbing folates. How we use folates. All right. So you have to have a certain gene to convert um, certain kinds of uh, to convert folic acid and other kinds of sources of methylate that might provide methylation support um, in into the natural folates. Um, But the the thing is that for hundreds of thousands of years, humans didn't need that gene because we got tons of natural folates in our diet. You know, we ate lots of leaves and lots of stems and lots of sources of natural folate. All right. Um, So it's kind of like vitamin C. We don't make vitamin C, right? We have to get vitamin C in our diet. We actually have the gene for making vitamin C buried in our genes. We just can't get to it anymore. Why did we do that? Because primates and humans ate so much vitamin C and I got it in our regular diet that we just gave up the ability to use that gene. Well, it was kind of the same way with folates. We got so much of it that the only time that we needed that gene was when Say there was a terrible drought. There was no plant matter, and all the thing, all the, the all that you could get was meat. So you could convert some amino acids, some homocysteine uh, from meat into the this this these methylation uh, support that you need to turn off bad genes and to uh, detoxify the body and all of that sort of thing. So we didn't use it very often. Um, But nowadays, you know, uh, some time back, we started shifting more to a grain and meat diet, so we became more and more dependent on that particular gene. But anytime you've got a gene that is present or multiple mutations in this place, uh, in this case, that's present in 50% of the population, you've got to raise a question, because The body is always trying to get rid of bad genes. Why would it retain these things that are so-called bad genes in 50% of the population? And the problem is we just haven't, you know, we've changed our diet so much in 100 years that we're having to rely on these genes that humans didn't rely on more than ever before. And that puts some people at a disadvantage. So even somebody with these gene defects, if they're eating a really healthy diet with lots of leafy greens and good natural sources of folate or taking methyl tetrahydrofolate or you know, uh, proper levels of B12, um, they're not gonna really have any problem. So I don't, uh, and, and it was interesting, in my private practice for a seven year period, I had this lab that would run it for us, um, basically with was free and part of a panel so, I got, I, I checked all my patients for it, all of them. And um, it was interesting that people that had a single mutation or a double mutation were mildly increased risk of having Lyme disease or having chronic illness. But I had an awful lot of people that had those mutations that weren't sick. And I also had people with chronic Lyme disease and fibromyalgia who didn't carry the mutations. So, I defined it as being a mild factor in illness, um, and one that is correctable mostly with diet. Uh, this thing that we are ill because of this this defective gene, I think is false. Um, you know the body just doesn't retain defective genes like that. you know it will get rid of them over time, and it would have long ago if if uh, you know so so and another. 10,000 years, um, if we all keep eating like we're doing, we won't carry that gene. We'll, we'll all have that gene for converting it. You know, we'll, so it'll slowly work out of our population, but hopefully we won't do that. Hopefully we'll go back to better dietary habits.
0: Dr. Can you define virulence and talk about the uh, virulence scale that you have in your, uh, in
2: your book, Unlocking Lyme? Um, yeah, virulence to me is a fascinating topic. Uh, uh, virulence is the capacity of a microbe to cause illness. And again, it's more a reflection of the immune system than it is the microbe. So if an immune system knows a microbe well, it can, if it can pull an app out of our genes to take care of that microbe, then the chances of that microbe causing illness are very much reduced. So the the more familiar that our immune system is with a a microbe, then the less virulent it is. So at the bottom of the scale, our normal flora, we've been having a relationship with those microbes for millions upon millions of years. They have been part of colonizing living organisms um for since the beginning so those are the ones that are the most common and we pick them up the fastest when we are born and uh and we pick them up from the surrounding environment and they become part of us and it's not that they're not aggressive all right um you know when 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 somebody dies it's their normal flora that decompose the body pretty quickly. So it, you know, when you don't have an immune system there, these microbes, those microbes are aggressive too. So the less the immune system knows a microbe, the more apt it is to cause illness. So something like Ebola virus has um, rarely been present in human populations. And it's, uh, so most things that can do us harm are called zoonoses. They you know, They, they come from animals and our immune system doesn't know them. And uh, so they have a higher potential to invade us and make us sick. So, whenever you've got a, a, someone sick from a microbe, that's a poorly matched host microbe relationship. You know, it's not well adapted. Um, a well adapted relationship, the microbe flourishes, the, the, the host flourishes, everybody benefits. And that's the kind of relationship that we have with our normal flora. It's a well-balanced relationship. Um, Ebola virus, it's rare. It has a rare host that they think is a spider that occasionally bites a bat, and if it happens to be it in human populations, man, we've never been exposed. Uh, This new coronavirus, they think, actually came from bats by by way of, uh, I think it's called civets, which is uh, kind of a, raccoon-like, uh, cat, raccoon-like, uh, and mammal, um, that they have live market, live animal markets, so there's a lot of contact. So it's, uh, so that's how they get into populations. So people are having, you know, we're very aware of coronavirus because it's making a lot of people sick all at once. So its virulence factor is much higher than Borrelia that is kind of flying under the radar. So Borrelia, the, the tick-borne microbes, you know, we've been exposed to this for a long time, ever since humans have have been exposed to ticks. Um, and that was really interesting that there they, that in uh, back in the 90s, they uh, there was a um, human male that thawed out of a glacier in the Italian Alps, 5,300 years old, um, and this person was carrying Borrelia, you know, and he was in his mid to late 40s, which was old at that time because, you know, life beached down. It was, it was really a really harsh environment to live. Um, but he was he was murdered. He doesn't die of Lyme disease. And he was walking across the Alps, you know, so he was carrying this microbe. So humans have been carrying these things for a long, long time. So I don't see them as being a virulent as much as these things that give us acute illness. Um, But the virulence factor, I think, is interesting on many levels as far as how we look at microbes. And it's something that you don't hear about in in circles of medical science, um, which is unfortunate. But this thing of of plagues like we're having right now, there's not really a lot of evidence that those have been occurring very long in human history. Um, You know, a lot of people where we think of the black plague and smallpox and all of these microbes that were so terrible as far as being ancient plagues, but they were only as ancient as human civilization. So if you go back to that 500,000 year old guy and before that, plagues weren't very common because there weren't very many people and they weren't living in large cities and they weren't living in close proximity. We didn't start having plagues until People started becoming civilized. So when you look at the uh, the the um, probably one of the worst has ever been is smallpox. Uh, smallpox actually is only about two or three thousand years old. It it kicked up in one of the first hotbeds of civilization in eastern Africa and the Middle East. Um, and they think it was one of you know it occurred when people started first started congregating in cities and started crowding and um it was uh, related to camels and a a uh, rodent which they haven't identified yet but they are pretty sure from the genetics that that's where it came from and that's how long it's been around um black plague black plague only showed up at about 1300 um it hasn't you know you look at the whole history of all of human history hadn't been around that long um malaria has not been around that long so a lot of the things well the longest acting ones is probably tuberculosis tuberculosis has been with us for a long time as far as all, all recorded history um but it's not as virulent as ebola black plague and some of these other things So whenever you look at acute infections and epidemics and that sort of thing, you are looking at something that's generally recently crossed over from an animal and it is associated with people crowding, you know, and the world is becoming more mobile and more and more crowded. Um, So I don't see Lyme disease as that same category. You know, they call it a rapidly emerging Infection and an epidemic, and it's not. Um, it's been endemic in humans for virtually all of time. Well, but
0: Dr. Oz, I think that sort of gets to my next question, which is: if we're defining Lyme disease as an acute infection caused by the Borrelia bacteria, then I think I might agree with you. But if we were going to define Lyme disease as a multi-germ infection, which may have microbes that have different virulence levels, then we may find that there are some differences now than there had been in the past. And that may be why we have um, chronic Lyme disease rather than just acute Lyme disease, which is what we saw with Etsy, the Iceman, or maybe anyone else in the past.
2: Yeah. I, you know, again, I, my, my, just my struggle and my searches has warped my perspective compared to a lot of people, I think um, in general, what I what my observation is, tells me is the more virulent a microbe is, the less apt it is to cause a chronic infection. So it's going to slam people, and they're either going to die or the immune system is going to figure it out, and they're gradually going to get well, or and they're going to take care of that microbe. Um, the lower virulence it is. You know, down in, on my scale of like uh, under six, you know, it, it, you're, you, the, the lower the virulence, the more apt it is to become part of us, basically. Um, so, you know, when you look at that medium grade of virulence, something like hepatitis C, how many people out there are carrying hepatitis C? And I'm hearing that it's flourishing in young people right now that don't know it and they're not going to know it until their liver dies when they're in middle age or, 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 or or become early elderly. Um, you know, so there are a lot of microbes that are lower on the virulent scale, but they have that potential to, uh, trick the immune system and cause a chronic infection. And they are actually much more devastating, you know, all our eyes are on coronavirus and COVID right now, but, Uh, This other thing of immune dysfunction, which I think is an epidemic in our world right now because of everything going on, um, is much more devastating, but it's harder to put a finger on, and it's much less visible, so it's much easier for physicians to not pay attention to, which is
0: frustrating. But is it possible that the multi-germ infection could have some germs that have a high virulence and as a consequence of the virility level being higher, that damages the immune system and then some of the microbes that wouldn't traditionally be difficult to manage then take a very different uh, approach or you know, now have a different strategy in causing illness?
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, that a higher virulence microbe can set you up for other problems. You know, there are going to people that come out of this coronavirus epidemic that for whatever reason they got hit harder, whether that was their immune system or a lot of healthcare providers. The younger people are the people that, that are getting hit hard with it or the people that are getting a heavy dose of this thing or just getting it over and over and over again. And when they get sick, um, you know, what we're finding is that people that end up in the ICU have got a long, bad recovery ahead of them, And and it can chronically disrupt their immune system function, which can put them, set them up for this thing that I put under an umbrella of chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, chronic Lyme disease. To me, the only difference in fibromyalgia and chronic and chronic Lyme disease is the person has a positive test for Borrelia, um, and, and that's about it. Um, but we also see this otherwise. You know, other tick-borne microbes out there that are more virulent, uh, Rickettsia rickettsiae, that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever you know, typically that's one that is well-recognized for causing uh, much more severe era, era, era illness. And part of that is because the kinds of blood of cells it likes to affect are the cells lining the blood vessels. So it causes swelling, it blocks blood vessels, so people lose blood supply, going to their fingers and everywhere else. That's what the rash comes from. Um, and for a long time I thought, hey, you get bitten by a tick by that microbe and you're going to get sick and you're going to get really, really ill, and it's going to be really bad. Turns out that a large portion of the people of people, and the exact figure is unknown because so many cases are unreported. A lot of people get bitten by a tick that carries that microbe and they never get ill um, because their immune system just happens to catch it early. But definitely if you get a more virulent microbe or uh, one of the rickettsias and some of the others with the Borrelia, yeah, I think there's a higher potential for getting sick. And you know, like I said, I, I, those, those cases in Lyme, Connecticut may have popped up and really been noticed, not because they were just Borrelia, but because there was the high prevalence of rickettsia too. So that may have been a factor in making those people sick. Is not getting one microbe, but two at the same time. Or multiple at the same time.
0: Dr. Oz, you speak a lot about immune disruptors. Can you talk about immune disruption and what role modern society is playing in disrupting our immune function?
2: Um, Yeah, I think that's a big one that we're just not paying enough attention to. It's, uh, and the reason we're not paying attention to it is because the things that I define as immune system disruptors or system disruptors are the things that make our lives comfortable in a lot of ways. So it's, um, you know, we, we all love that carb loaded, fat loaded food because it hits all of our taste buds. You know, it's, it's uh, our cells need energy to function. And for hundreds of thousands of years, there wasn't a lot of energy in food. Um, Forage diets were extremely. Lean and energy, um, but that's what our brain tells us we need. So with these, uh, so our modern diets are loaded with these foods that disrupt our systems, overload ourselves with with uh, energy, and and cause us to uh, become ill. And then all the toxins. You know, everybody's talking about global warming. That's a small portion of the problem. It's, it's all the toxins that we're dumping into the atmosphere that are the problem. Um, and we're getting them. And everything we eat, everything we drink, every bit of air we breathe has, has, uh, has toxins on in it. And then because of modern lighting, we're not sleeping as much as we should. We're all on the go. We've all got schedules. We've all got deadlines. We are all pushing the curve in, in every respect. Um, that's what got me into trouble. You know, I was doing obstetrics and gynecology. I love the profession, but I was on call every other night, a lot of the time. And I didn't sleep when I was on call, but you know, I didn't see the need for sleep. I didn't sleep much when I wasn't on call. I just pushed through it. And it was busy all the time and raising a family and eating on the run and all of it was part of it. And ultimately I crashed. And you get in that tailspin, that vicious cycle where the microbes are, are get the upper hand and they're running the show, it's going to take more than just a better diet and stress reduction to get you well. And, and that's where herbs and other kinds of things come into play. But um, when you look at our world, it, it so much of it is related to petroleum. Um, that is the one factor that I think is is driving all of it more than anything else um you know petroleum makes our food easy and very available and very full of carbohydrate and fat petroleum allows us to travel it provides our artificial lighting to stay up at night i mean it's it's uh it, 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 it provides plastic, it provides the fuel for our cars. I mean, it, it, it's everything, but everything that is, uh, everything coming out of it is, is a problem. And it's, um, it's one that we're going to have to learn to adapt to. And, and so it's, yeah, global warming is big, but it's not nearly as big as the toxins.
1: Dr. Rolfe, many of our guests have brought up 5G, the new cellular network coming out, as a potential really harmful system disruptor. Would you agree that that's something to be on the lookout for as we move forward with technology and cellular signals?
2: I think it has a high potential for harm. Yeah, I'm worried about it. Um, How much of a, you know, if people have a strong immune system and they're healthy, they'll probably tolerate it okay, but I think those who don't are going to be really affected by it. when you look at the human body, I, this is a way that I think very differently than other physicians. I look at the human body as a collection of cells. And for us to function, all of our cells have to get nutrients, oxygen, enough, just the right concentration of fuel in the form of carbohydrates and fats. And to do that, you've got to have all the other cells in the body to serve one cell. You know? I mean, pick a heart cell. You've got to have the intestinal system. You've got to have the lung- cells and lungs. You've got to have every other system in the body working to keep that flow of nutrients bathing every cell. And when cells don't get that, they suffer. Um, and so, you know, so it, it's really important that, that we are looking at our body in terms of, of how, how can we keep our cells healthy? You know, what are we doing? So communication is really important. Cells have to, uh, cells have to have, uh, uh, be able to c- communicate. Every cell in the body has to communicate with all the other cells in the body, including uh, the immune cells. And they have to, and our immune cells have to protect us from all the microbes in our body. They're a competition for all the nutrients. They're they're what keep us from from getting all, all that stuff, you know? So it's a constant type of war.
1: What are your thoughts on EMF technologies? Especially now, we're on Zoom all the time. We had one guest who had a child who unfortunately passed away and her child couldn't even be in the same room as a television or a cell phone. So do you think the technology is something that can cause a negative impact on healing?
2: Yeah, when you look at our cells, one of the ways our cells communicate is with electrical energy. There's even some evidence that we use, that our cells use light to communicate with one another. Um, and that energy pathway uh, has been defined by the Chinese long ago as meridians that pass through our body. We measure it with EKGs. We can measure it in the brain waves with EEGs. So we're producing this electrical current throughout our body um, that is, is very uh, uh, sensitive to being affected by outside energy sources. So when you look at our world today, I mean, look at all the confusing and, and abnormal sources of radiated energy. You know, I'm sitting by a computer and a light, and all of these things are radiating. Uh, LED lights are radiating energy, and they are passing through our body. Now, there, there's two kinds of, of of radiation when you look at energy. There's ionizing radiation that acts like a free radical. It passes through your body. Um, UV and, and passes just you know just below your skin and can damage your skin cells. X-ray and gamma ray pass all the way through your body and hit molecules and basically act like free radicals. So so non-ionizing radiation, EMF and, the, and these things that we're talking about are of a frequency that they don't actually pass through the body and disrupt, but there's very good evidence that they do disrupt the energies, that, that balance of energy that's flowing through our body that's produced by our cells. Um, So, yeah, it is. And now that my health is restored completely, I am not as affected as much by it. But when I was really struggling, yeah, being by a computer very long or even a cell phone, um, it bothered me. I I could tell. Um, So I can imagine You know, and I've had so many people that have had to go and get off the grid and go live out in the country somewhere because they can't really tolerate any artificial energy sources. They have to be really careful about it. So yeah, I worry that maybe we're carrying some of it too far. Um, I try not to carry my my cell phone on my body as much. I try to put as much distance as I can between. Myself and computers, sometimes that's hard, but certainly take a break from them. Um, and I do a lot of writing, so I've gotten so I, I, I walk with a pad and a pencil. I, I sit down and write on pads and then go back and, and translate it into the computer um, just to get away from the box as much as I can. But yeah, we're really getting bombarded with it, with AI, with you know, I mean, there's there's a, a speaker and a machine on every shelf, and all of our our devices are now ectro, 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 mm, um, electronically uh, connected and 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 to the internet. So we've got all these waves going all around us. 5g is even higher intensity than what we're using now. And yeah, it's a bit concerning. Um, it's hard to quantitate though, you know, it's, um, it's hard to quantitate, um, a, uh, a study that got a lot of, of, uh, criticism just in the way it was designed, but still one that I think is worth paying some attention to some researchers in Brazil, looked at all the cell phone towers the microwave towers in brazil and they suggested that people that lived within 500 meters of a tower had uh increased risk of cancer you know like an 80 percent increased risk and they the again the study has been criticized um not surprisingly but it was still you know it's enough to take you aback and say Hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should be pay, paying attention to this and cell phone towers are bad enough or we're going to put one on every telephone pole that's even more intense i have some reservations about it and i'm not quite sure how to manage it yet you know um do we move to get away from it i mean it's, it's kind of hard because they're kind of forcing it down our throat
0: Dr. Rose, you spoke to us last time about the difference between a physician focusing on illness versus wellness. Could you discuss that with us again?
2: Well, you have to look at the whole medical system. That The medical system is really designed to treat acute illness. It always has been. Um, going back to its very origins, you know, and you know, going back to Hippocrates, really. Um, it is designed to treat more ac- acute illness than chronic illness, and it's always been that way. Um, and we have great success. I mean, you know, it's, it's look, the, the visible things, the things that are in your face are the things that you pay attention to. Now, how many people have been paying attention to chronic Lyme disease over the past 10 or 20 or 50 years compared to how many eyes are on COVID right now? You know, the things that are acute and the things that are in our face are the things that we pay attention to. Ebola virus, these acute threats, we do very well. And our medical system, uh, frankly, is, you know, it's, it's well designed to take care of those things. If somebody has a stroke or a broken leg and it's pretty obvious that, you know, the body is in acute disruption and we can stabilize that disruption and allow the healing systems of the body to work. It does great. But when we move into chronic illness, we try to apply those same tools that we do for acute illness into chronic illness, and it just doesn't work as well. So when you look at drug and surgical therapies for chronic illness, we're, we're still trying to acute, treat the acute manifestations of the illness. So we're treating the symptoms, we're suppressing the processes. Um, but it's, it's, it's that deal. I mean, it's that uh, when a patient comes into the office, you know, we're trained to take a list of the symptoms, do a physical exam, do labs to try to find the diagnosis. And once you find the diagnosis, that sets up your treatment protocol. Um, and... I found personally that just didn't work very well and I started focusing on that question of why is this patient ill what truly is causing this patient not to get well why why are they being maintained in this state with chronic illness and then I started asking you know I, I it changed my history to go into Uh, Diet and lifestyle, and exposure to toxins, and exposure to all these potential things, and potential chronic microbes that they could have on board. And do they have immune dysfunction that is driving this thing? And when I started paying attention to those things, I started thinking differently. You know, the diagnosis was less important, and drugs became more important for acutely stabilizing the patient situation and not necessarily um, part of a long-term plan, you know, but chronic illness, you go to an internist, you've got something chronic, um, you're going to be on a medication forever. And it's, um, you know, in, in my case, in my 30s, I was diagnosed with essential hypertension. You know, I'd go in for physical, and my blood pressure would be 150 over 100 in any given time, sometimes higher, every time and I tried different medications, they made me feel terrible, and I finally just was like, "Ah, guess I'm gonna have to just live with this and die with this because I can't take the drugs. And they said, well, it's genetic, you're always going to have it, and it's not going to get better, it will get worse, and you will have to take drugs for it. Guess what? After going through all the procedures that I went through to get over Lyme disease, The herbs, the changing my diet, you know, all the things that I was doing. And, you know, way back in my 30s, I was exercising, but I was stressed like crazy. And I was eating bad food and I was doing all the wrong things. So by my mid-50s, after I had embraced a totally different approach to life, approach to wellness, um, my blood pressure normalized. I didn't have essential hypertension. I just wasn't treating my body right. You know, now at 62, I go in for a physical exam and my blood pressure will be typically about 115 over 70. No drugs.
0: So Dr. Rawls, after someone suffers a tick bite, what should they expect from their physician just to be treated acutely and then assume the responsibility of managing their chronic illness or, or should there be some other relationship between Lyme patients and their doctors?
2: You know, I I just don't think we're there yet as far as as, uh, uh, understanding of Lyme disease in the medical community. And we're not um, understanding that really important relationship that natural therapies have for Lyme disease. You know, I don't know if you guys are aware, but there was uh, we're, we're getting there very, very slowly, but there is a researcher at Johns Hopkins University that's from China, and he's interested in the application of herbal therapy, so they have a, uh, a, a an integrative uh, group there that's very active, and he just published a study showing that um, six different herbs, um, many of which are in our products, are more effective for treating Borrelia than antibiotics are. Um, you know, and the same thing with COVID, um, I have to ask why has China gotten a really good control over this, this, uh, COVID infection, uh, that we haven't, you know, they're quarantining. They did that, but we're also hearing reports that they're using both natural therapies and drug therapies. They're using traditional Chinese medicine and they're getting people well better. And there is very good evidence, you know, from from uh, you know Stephen Booner and others started looking at natural therapies with back with SARS in 2003 and later with MERS in the Middle East, which was a coronavirus, and find that found has found that quite a number of herbs, and interestingly, many of them that are on the list for Lyme disease, have great activity against. Uh, coronavirus, to the, against this particular coronavirus. Um, so nature provides a lot of things. And so if I was doing it, if I could call the shots, you know, if somebody came in with a a, in, in, uh, a presentation of, hey, I got this tick bite, I've got a bullseye rash, I've developed symptoms, um, yes, I would put them on docs that like them. Because that can acutely knock down the infection and help the immune system, but I'd also put them on herbs, and I wouldn't stop the herbs for six months to a year, if even then.
0: So, would you put them on doxy at the same time you'd put them on the herbs, or would you treat them first with the doxy and then the herbal protocol?
2: I don't think there's any harm in using the two together because they don't work the same way, and um, you know, I I I I think that. We use the doxycycline as much as anything, uh, and that may change with the study out of Johns Hopkins. Um, But we use the doxycycline because it is known, and we do know that some people treated with antibiotics will never develop the symptoms of Lyme disease. So I think it is, you know, it's enough of a known that I don't think it is something to ignore. But I'll also tell you, there's studies out there, and I've seen way too many patients that got antibiotics and they show up with symptoms six months later, and I know that, they, that it didn't eradicate. So for that reason, I'm really reluctant just to treat someone with antibiotics alone. Um, in my practice, I've always recommended that they continue herbal therapy for an undefined period of time. And it's because the herbs have so few side effects and there's so much, so the potential for harm is so low. In fact, I, you know I, most people taking herbs regularly are a lot more healthy than people who don't. So I just I, I have a hard time arguing with not doing it.
0: Well, let me follow up and ask you about prophylactic treatment uh, because Matt and I have had different experiences. After I was bitten by the tick, I was given uh, doxycycline for five days prophylactically. And then I was told that I shouldn't have anything to worry about. And I was very anxious about that. And I was looking for something more long-term. So I didn't present with the bullseye rash, but I wanted to make sure that I, I was treating um, the potential of, 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 of getting Lyme disease prophylactically. What would you recommend to somebody who doesn't present with the bullseye but wants to treat prophylactically?
2: I treat them with herbs long-term, every time. Um, and they've been back and forth over the years because the studies really do not define how well the antibiotics actually help. Uh, right now, the CDC is only recommending prophylactic treatment for people who are in high risk areas that the incidence, you know, that, that a lot of the ticks are carrying uh, Borrelia. But again, all ticks are carrying something. And if you try to treat every time, every person, every time they get a tick, it gets a little out of hand and you start using uh, way over using antibiotics, which we've got a real problem with already in our culture. You know, it's, um, we, we <laughs> Our, our, our looming threat out there is, is probably less coronavirus and more antibiotic resistance because of our ridiculously extravagant use of antibiotics. Um, and you know, we're just way overusing antibiotics in our culture. So you look at the number of tick bites that people have, and sometimes people are frequently getting tick bites. Man, if you were loading them up with doxycycline or amoxicillin every single time they got a tick bite, be using a lot of antibiotics. Um, Herbs offer a really nice solution that you can protect someone. Again, the Johns Hopkins study suggests that they work just as well as antibiotics, and you can do them longer term without disrupting normal flora and causing long-term harm. So I think that would be a much better protocol. The problem is nobody will study these things. You know, we're we're just starting to see the, the medical establishment looking at them. So it's going to be another 20 years before we can definitively uh, have those kinds of answers that we need.
1: Dr. Orles, what, are, what are you, what's your opinion on the high-throughput drug screening that they're doing at Stanford Medicine, where they found the disulfram and now this azlocillin antibiotic, which is saying could be the next promising drug to treat Lyme disease? Dr.
2: Um, don't know. And it's, uh, it's actually not a new antibiotic. It's been around for a while. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's another uh, test tube study. I think it has the potential for harm that any antibiotics do. Like, everybody's looking for that silver bullet for, for Lyme disease. And I just, I don't think that's it. And if people come out with things that are, well, this is the newest, latest, greatest thing. And um, that's the newest, latest, greatest thing. But it's actually not a new antibiotic. I mean, it's not, it is not a new antibiotic that's been developed for Lyme disease. It's one that was tabled because it didn't work very well, and somebody drug it back up and tried it for Lyme disease for, for Borrelli and a test. All right? So it's, um, yeah.
0: Dr. Rawls, are you allowed to talk about your protocols and your products during the course of this podcast? Because I, I do have <coughs> some questions about... Talk-
2: yeah, I can't talk about them specifically. Um, I, I, again, the uh, you know in our country, the FDA puts a lot of restrictions about what we can say about products and and defining them as drugs and that sort of thing. But I can tell you that there are a lot of wonderful things out there. Um, you know, some things that this this latest Johns Hopkins study, they looked at a handful of, uh, they looked at about a dozen different herbs. And on that list were artemisia, about black walnut, cryptolepis, um, andrographis, cat's claw, Chinese skullcap, um, along with some things that are, weren't necessarily herbs that didn't have that much benefit um like uh monolaurin and and some things like that were on the list um artemisia and black walnut had significant activity uh i don't put them in a long-term protocol because there is you know there's certain herbs that there's a little bit more um room for them causing side effects long term so uh, and there, there there's a higher potential of those herbs to cause side effects the Chinese skullcap and, and cat's claw had great activity, and those are some good immune-modulating herbs that I think are good for long-term use. But even beyond that, there, you know, it was interesting they didn't find any activity with andrographis, which is one of my favorite herbs um, in this test tube study. But the researchers said, you know, th- that this... Um, the they were able, they weren't really looking for the immune reaction. They were trying to exclude the immune reaction and look to see whether these herbs had true antimicrobial value by themselves. And they made the comment that, hey, andrographis may have some wonderful properties in how it affects the immune system that may be extremely valuable in Lyme disease. So don't throw it out the door. And that's what I said. So, uh, some of my favorites as far as treating Lyme disease are a good initial protocol. I include Japanese knotweed, another one on the list that was uh, had activity against both the cis forms and the mobile forms. Uh, cat's claw is, I think, a top herb. Uh, Chinese skullcap is a good one. Um, but then immune modulating herbs are very important, too, because you want to tone down that excessive cytokine reaction. Uh, so andrographis is one of the things that can help us in that. And some of the other, uh, uh, you know, some of the things that are going on in the body, I think does, it does wonderful. Reishi, cordyceps. Uh, so those are some herbs that are top of the list. And then the cryptolepis I generally is a reserve um, for people that have, that just aren't getting well with the primary protocol um so adding on that hutonia is another core herb called Al- California. Um, and the garlic was on the list i forgot garlic uh, you know stabilized garlic is excellent so there are some good core herbs out there that have wonderful activity but you know over my time i've there are just so many good herbs out there that can be effective for these kinds of things not only in suppressing borrelia but suppressing all these other opportunist mi- opportunistic microbes that are starting to flourish that are part of the problem. But the herbs have the capacity to also restore immune system functions, to help the immune system work better. And that's something that nothing else on earth has. You know, whether you're talking about a drug or ozone or anything that's directed toward killing the microbes. There's nothing that can help the immune system better than herbal therapy. So Dr. Rawls, if someone was
0: living in a tick endemic community, such as Matt and I are, and we know that we're coming in contact with ticks on a regular basis, what would you recommend so that we could prophylactically protect ourselves from ticks we may not even find biting us?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I I still am very active outdoors. I still do a lot of hiking. Uh, We still come up to Maine pretty frequently. Um, so my, my first defense is just being super, super vigilant. And, uh, if I'm in a tick endemic area, when I go out into areas that I'm concerned about, uh, I generally use some kind of repellent. I don't care for the DEET personally. Um, I think it has potential to be absorbed and suppress immune system functions, but I've found that a lot of the se- essential oil sprays. Uh, with citronella and various kinds of things actually work pretty darn well. So primary defense is keeping the ticks off. Um, Using herbal therapy for a long time, I seem not to be quite as palatable to ticks as I used to. I just don't get them on me very often anymore. Um, But walking, there are two really two schools of thought there. One is wearing long pants and that are impregnated uh, with some kind of repellent in, in shoes and socks. Um, the other, which I've had pretty good result with, is just being hypervigilant and going in shorts and staying out of brush, especially. Um, and being, you know, some, something lands on my skin, I'm aware of it. Um, and every so often, when I'm walking, I just stop and look down at my legs, look through my body. Sometimes that doesn't work for the really small nymph ticks. Um, So it depends on the season of the year of how bad they're going to be. But I think hypervigilance is certainly within reason. And then beyond that, um, I found a wonderful anti-aging strategy is just taking herbs all the time. So, I considered myself recovered. It took me about five years to, to really get to a point where I considered myself recovered. So about mid-50s, you know, I reached that point that I'd said, okay, you know, I feel like I'm over Lyme disease now. Um, all these crazy symptoms that I, I've been having for so many years are cleared. I'm feeling a lot better. You know, I'm, got, I'm living a normal life. I kept taking the herbs because I was scared to stop them. You know, I knew like, yeah, I, haven't, I don't know that I've eradicated these microbes inside my body. I'm just going to keep doing this. And I have kept doing that. And now at 62, man, I just, I don't have the joint pain. I've got energy. I mean, all the things that you you expect to have at 62, I'm just not having them, especially after I feel like I wrecked my body 10 years ago. I mean, I was trashed 10 years ago. Um, it was Bad. I had bad knees and bad hips and I thought for sure I'd be having replacements of everything. And uh, I don't, (laughs) it's all working, it's great. And so I keep taking the herbs. Um, Now I take predominantly adaptogenic herbs, which do have some antimicrobial properties that are more immune modulating. Um, But I tell you what, if I walked in tomorrow and I had a tick uh, embedded in my skin, boy, I'd be loading up on andrographis and Japanese skullcap and Japanese knotweed and cryptolepis, and I'd be, yeah, immediately. So I'd definitely have those on hand, and I'd definitely take them for several months until I knew that I was clear of having symptoms.
0: Dr. Rawls, one of the things that I found frustrating about my recent experience with the tick bite is I couldn't find any shortcuts to help me stay healthy. If someone were to suffer a tick bite and they wanted to go the herbal route, do you believe that if they stumbled across your website, the products that Rawls MD is offering could be a shortcut for them?
2: No, I mean there's a lot of information on the Rawls MD website. There's no doubt about that. And um, the book I wrote, Unlocking Lyme, really is a wonderful resource for those basic things. And it talks about all these issues. It really addresses all aspects of, of Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease. And you know, I, I uh, took a year out of my right life to write it because I felt like it was so important because there's so much misconception surrounding this condition out there. You now it's it's crazy. You know, we already know more about COVID than we know about chronic Lyme disease, and, and it's uh, it's it's just because it is not visible, people aren't looking at it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the book has the basic herbal protocol to start with. And I would think it should be valuable to anybody that I think lives in a uh, lyman endemic area. And it's one of those things that it's, it's a reference book. It's a, it's a big book that's got a lot of material, but it's, it's something that, um, you know, you read the first five chapters, which wouldn't take more than a couple of hours at the very most, um, and skip through your herbal protocols. And it's going to give you the core information that you need to protect yourself. But, um, but Dr.
0: Rolls, I, I read your book twice and I listened to the book, the audio version of your book twice. So I've gone through your book four times. And I don't feel that I have at this point sufficient information to get to the shortcut I would need in order to be able to get the tools I wanted to keep myself safe. So my question is, could I get to the shortcut by um uh, and by the way i think your book is brilliant that's why i've read it so often um this is not a criticism but i would i wanted a shortcut because i was full of anxiety i couldn't really focus on reading your book or any other book i needed a quick answer and i'm wondering if i could get to your website and purchase products so that i could have the shortcut that someone like me would need
2: uh sounds like i've got more work to do on my Rawls MD website if giving that information i've actually uh I, we got sidetracked, and I was I I wrote this thing called Lyme Fundamentals that would give all of that. It would be like a series of five articles, and and I need to go ahead and finish that out and post it on the website. I think that would be helpful. Um, the problem is that the FDA and FTC will not allow. Um, us to say anything on our website that sells products about Lyme disease. I can't mention the word Lyme disease. I cannot, you know, the, the, the way the regulations are written, I cannot use the word healing. I cannot use the word promotes wellness on the same page that is, that has is, is, is selling a herbal supplement. I can say supports wellness, but I can't say promotes wellness because that's treating disease and I can't treat disease with these things. (laughs) So it is really unbelievably restrictive, Um, but it's gone to the point that evidently the FDA and FTC have influenced Google, the main search engine, and you cannot, it's very hard to find anything about any herbal products by searching through Google because Google is now um, censoring all of those things. And it is, uh, you know, you will get websites like WebMD and things like that that are paid for by the pharmaceutical companies, but you will not see companies, um, that are, 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 are doing the things that you're talking about. So it's getting harder and harder to find information about Lyme disease. Um, they went through an algorithm change last April, And our traffic to the Rawls MD site dropped by 98% within a month because they just basically censored it out. And they've censored a lot of providers like me out there that are trying to reach people with this condition. It's very unfortunate. And I don't know, I'd love to see a movement that we were looking for another um, provider uh, another, another website engine. Uh, you know we, they, they were sneaky. They all got us, they got us used to it and, <laughs> and now they're controlling things. Um, you know I'm, I'm signed up with a listserv with other providers and other people that are interested in solving the Lyme problem um, that I've been getting for years. It's a great source of information and a great way for me to connect with other people out there that are thinking like I am. Um, Google suddenly four days ago labeled it as spam and cut it off. Um, and I had to go back and find it and unlabeled it as spam spontaneously, just out of the blue. So we're getting more and more and more censorship in our world. And it's, uh, it, it's kind of crazy, but yeah, a well, lot of things are being censored that people don't realize.
1: Dr. Oh, that's, that's just infuriating to hear that right now because, uh, it's yes. such a helpful protocol for so many, but we can say for those listening to this episode, we have a link in our Instagram bio at Tick Bootcamp to an herbal protocol that we know uh, will work. Uh, that, that link is in our bio for those listening, and that's the link to for the herbs that can help you if you have Lyme or bitten by a tick. I think that's hopefully helpful information for those that are listening right now.
2: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, getting the information out has been the most frustrating thing of anything so i really appreciate this opportunity to reach people thank you guys very much
0: so and we we thank you for all the great content that you're producing because you are producing the best content and the largest volume of content in this community so we have to thank you for thank all you. that great work you're doing no. uh, so, so dr rolls let's let's talk about a couple of other things i know matt is gonna have a whole bunch of questions to ask you uh, sorry matt i've been dominating but i couldn't wait to talk to you Dr. my tongue <laughs> So. Um, do you believe that there is a Lyme pandemic?
2: Well, pandemic is something like we were having with COVID, all right? Um, and pandemic generally means that you have a new microbe that has crossed over into a human population, so you have an outbreak. So if it's a localized outbreak, like when it started in China, it was an epidemic. When it spread all around the world, it was pandemic, all right? So that's a new microbe. Humans have never really been exposed to this particular microbe. Um, And, you know, we can see the same things with influenzas and things like that, that you have a pandemic of, you know, a new uh, strain of influenza that that circulates around the world. Um, but when you have a microbe that is pretty much seeded in human populations and is always, always has been, it's called endemic. And so when we look at this thing that we call chronic Lyme disease and Lyme disease in general, it's defined as endemic. Um, but that's not something you know that but but so so the medical establishment, the infectious disease community isn't always looking at it properly. You know, there are a lot of people that are looking at it and saying, hey, this thing started in Lyme, Connecticut, and it's grown from there and it's gradually expanded around the world. Um, this is just fault. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just fault in every way because Physicians were reporting this this, uh, uh, EM rash, the bullseye rash, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Lyme, Connecticut. And then you've got uh, this 5,000-year-old guy that thawed out of a glacier that had it in his system, and you've got Borrelia that is present in ticks um, from the Dominican Republic sealed in amber that's 15 million years old you know so humans have been getting this thing ever since humans have been bitten by ticks which has been always so it's not a new microbe and that's why we don't have an acute devastating infection from it so it's not an epidemic it's not a pandemic it's endemic it's always been there there are 12 species of Borrelia it is found from the Arctic to the tropics it is present in every populate, human population on Earth. Um, so, if it is spreading, it is because people are getting more ill from it. Because we are having a pan epidemic, a pandemic of chronic immune dysfunction, because of the way that we're going about life.
0: What is your reaction to folks like Chris Newby, who has written the book Bitten? who argue that chronic Lyme disease is a consequence of bioweapon engineers from pre and post World War II, who are in part using ticks as a vector for transferring viral forms of multi-germ infections.
2: Yeah, you know, th- this concept of using biotechnology is, uh, for you know, using viruses, using bacteria has been around for a long time. And um, fortunately, nobody's really been crazy enough to do it because it can really backfire on you. And that goes back to their, it, it goes back to this thing. I, I actually researched it. There was a, a, a an idea <laughs> in the military that they would uh, get a whole bunch of ticks um, from a Lyme endemic area and they would dump those ticks on the enemy. <laughs> and it never really happened. Um, so, no, they didn't engineer, there's nothing that I could find that suggested that anybody engineered a specific microbe. And again, people have been getting bitten by ticks and Borrelia. I mean, Borrelia has been around a long, long time. And it's not a different Borrelia than than was in that 5,000-year-old man. So the idea that they manufactured Borrelia when we have all this evidence suggesting that it's been around for a long time, that there there are 12 species of it worldwide, and probably more, we just haven't found all of them, and many, many species of Borrelia, um, that thought, I think, is ridiculous.
0: Well, but I think we're falling back to defining Lyme disease as an acute infection caused by contact with Borrelia. Whereas if we define Lyme disease as a multi-germ infection, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that, um, that the bioweapons uh, research, which was greater um, than the research that was being done on the Manhattan Project, um, could in fact be the reason why uh, we have uh, the chronic condition the way it is. And I'm just wondering whether or not you, you're open to the possibility that it was, in fact, um, work that was done by Bergdoffer and others that, um, that I think has been very well established that has resulted in the creation of a pandemic because of the combination of of um, microbes rather than just a Borrelia microbe.
2: Well, no, I, you know, when we look at that thing of acute versus chronic, um, you know, if you look at Lyme disease, uh, if someone is symptomatic and they test positive for Borrelia, that's a single you know that we we've only identified one microbe, though there, there can be other microbes, variable microbes that cross over with ticks, but you know that's that's always been the case. I mean that's nothing new or nothing contrived. Um, that's just the nature of ticks, and that's another, the nature that of ticks I've always been. Um, but again, anytime you have a chronic infection of any kind, um, I consider it polymicrobial because it disrupts immune. because to me, chronic infection is just, is chronic immune dysfunction. If the immune system isn't functioning properly, there are a lot of microbes that can flourish in the body. You know, you have reactivation of Epstein-Barr, 95% of the population picks that one up, um, one of the studies they were looking they found microbes in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Um, you know, there was this big spectrum of microbes, and, and uh, you know, there have been different microbes that have been connected to Alzheimer's from herpes simplex to chlamydia to Borrelia. Uh, the one the main one in this study was uh, P. acnes, the microbe that causes acne. Uh, they found it in the, these people's brains consistently. Um, it's an opportunist, you know? It's looking for an opportunist to where, and wherever it can get. Um, so I think this idea of chronic infection is more of chronic immune dysfunction than polymicrobial is the fact that we all have microbes, whether we get them for ticks or other things. You know, you look at this the, the definition of co-infection and co-infection technically would be Things that you get from ticks, but everybody is classifying other microbes. You know, Bartonella, it's a really common co infection. Are people getting from ticks? Probably not. They probably got it a long time ago from their pets. Um, and mycoplasma 75% of people that uh, have chronic Lyme disease have, are found to have mycoplasma. Are they getting it from a tick mite? Probably not. They probably got it as a kid. Um, mycoplasma pneumonia, or they picked it up from sexual contact with one of the mycoplasmas that are spread sexually. Um, So we harbor these things. And when our immune system gets disrupted, they become active.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Bill Rawls. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Rawls, please visit his Instagram page at RawlsMD. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements to the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.